0: help people to figure out how to rehabilitate their identity based on everything that has turned them into who they are because identity is the sum total of every good and every bad thing that has ever happened to you and everything between. My entire story, especially as an identical twin, as an Inner kid, as all of those monikers is who in the world am I in relationship to everything else that I'm interacting with because it is so unbelievably disorienting. And my entire story around identity has been trying to figure out my orientation to who I am in relationship to everything that I come into contact with. So It's been kind of wild. Welcome to the Living Centered Podcast, where we enter into honest conversations about pursuing a more centered life, rediscovering, reclaiming, and rooting in to who we truly are. I'm your host, Miles Adcox.
1: I'm your host, Lindsay Nobles. And I'm your host, Mackenzie Vogt. All right, friends, this week's episode is incredible. I know I say that a lot. But Lindsay and I were both so excited for the opportunity to sit down with the incredible Dr. Jerome Libba. We met him last fall, and we are just relishing in the opportunity to get to know him a little bit more. He's beyond brilliant. Like, I wanted to take notes the entire episode and listen to it several times just to make sure I didn't miss anything he said. He refers to himself in this episode as a personal trainer for the brain and an identity rehab specialist. But What does that really mean? Dr. Jerome as a functional neurologist helps people make sense of what's going on in their brains and bodies. He calls himself the patient doctor because it was his own quest for neurological well-being that led him to specialize in complex, unresolved neurological cases for his clients. During this conversation, he shares his personal story of his quest to find answers, how he's still in process, how he helps clients not only find medical answers but also improve their overall wellness And he makes some pretty complicated principles feel practical and approachable. He even walks Lindsay and I both through two different practices that will interrupt well-worn patterns in your life and help you develop the neuroplasticity and new ways of thinking so that you can operate differently in the world. I know you're going to love it and I can't wait for you to meet Dr. Jerome Libba.
2: Today, we are here with our friend, Dr. Jerome Libba. Thank you so much for joining us and for your time. I personally am so excited to just get to know you better for an hour and have an excuse to mm-hmm. do that. Because our paths crossed last fall, and I felt like I was in proximity to you, but never got to like really be with you and ask all the questions that I wanted to. So I'm going to do that now.
0: <laughs> I love it. Thank you so much for having me. It's a gift. I'm looking forward to it.
2: So you were not born in America. I was not. Where were you born? Yeah, to start there. Tell us a little yeah, bit no, about your origin story and like. I
0: will. I'll give you. I'll give you the high level bullet point. I joke with folks. It's either the start to a bad book or it's just my life, right? It's a, It's. It sounds made up, but I'm a six foot two, two hundred and eighty pound heterosexual white man. So I look and I sound like I'm from the Midwest or from somewhere in like a neutral place of the country, yeah. um, but I'm actually a South African-born Congolese immigrant to Zimbabwean parents who immigrated to the States on asylum status as a refugee in the early 90s. hundred bucks, two suitcases, a bipolar grandmother, and a parrot. I went to 11 (laughs) different schools before I graduated high school. I have an identical twin brother and an older brother. I've been in five countries, went to three different colleges. I have lived in seven different states. And a lot of times people ask me where I'm from, and I tell them, well, I can tell you for sure at least it's Earth. But the rest (laughs) of it, it's been a bit convoluted. But yeah, I had a pretty interesting origin story because I don't look like your typical African refugee immigrant kid when I show up. And I also found out when I moved to the States that I have a non-traditional white name, yeah. meaning most yeah. people who know Jerome's, I actually had this happen with my wife at dinner. We had our 17-year anniversary just this past Friday. And we ordered the Uber and I opened the door and I said the Uber driver's name and he goes, Jerome? Really? Really? because he's a black (laughs) Uber driver. And nine out of 10 times, if the Uber driver is black and they're confirming that I've ordered the Uber, nine out of 10 times, they will think that I'm getting in the wrong car. (laughs) Uh, I I have a traditionally black name. So I've had a very wild experience growing up in what is essentially a third culture kind of space.
2: Yeah, I heard a ton of themes around transition, and mm-hmm. adversity and because um, transition as a kid is shaping and hard and yeah and then also just
0: some resilience
2: and identity <laughs> you know and that there was a lot of blurriness around the disparities of like mm-hmm. who you were versus who people expected you to be. And so 100%. I'm curious just how sort of those themes of your upbringing have shaped you and the man you are today.
0: Oh, my gosh. It's fascinating when you said it that way, Lindsay, how many emotions came up for me? Because you phrased it in a couple of ways I don't think I've actually heard. And it's it's always, and I think it's one of the things that I love about Onsite, is how you can hear a simple reframe in a couple of words of something that has been your story for four decades. And you're like, oh, God, that is so significant. (laughs) Uh, So I appreciate what you said, because what landed for me and what really hit was... I have had so many experiences of showing up in a way that people expected something from me or of me just based on the way that I looked. And it completely changed the dynamic of my relationship of what people expect of me. And my history is that I am going to anticipate that somebody expects something of me that I can't fulfill. And that dissonance between what they need or what they want and what I need and what I want and even my permission to communicate that is so complex, right? Mm-hmm. So, and then when you talk about identity, yeah, I mean, my entire body of work at this point is around helping people. I, I tell people there's two phrases for what I do that help people understand what I am and how I navigate the world and how I interact. Is one is I'm a personal trainer for the brain. And the other one is I, I'm an identity rehab specialist. I help people to figure out how to rehabilitate their identity based on everything that has turned them into who they are. Because identity is a sum total of every good and every bad thing that has ever happened to you and everything between. Uh, And then a personal trainer for the brain is how do we use everything that's already naturally in your brain and body connection to help you develop and cultivate a healthier version of yourself. In my world, I do it drugs and surgery free, but I collaborate with other clinicians that also utilize those resources. But why I say that is, yeah, my entire story, especially as an identical twin,
1: Mm -hmm. uh, as
0: an immigrant kid, as all of those monikers, is who in the world am I in relationship to everything else that I'm interacting with? Because it is so unbelievably disorienting. And my entire story around identity has been trying to figure out my orientation to who I am in relationship to everything that I come into contact with. So it's been kind of... Wow. So I appreciate you mentioning the identity piece yeah. and then also the expectation piece, because there is a lot in that for sure.
1: Yeah. And as you were talking, it was making me think you were saying in relation to everything I come into contact with, but as someone who I think is efficient and nurturing, you started you said that before we started the conversation. I wonder how much of the way that you anticipate other people's needs is met by you, you know, showing up in the world and knowing, hey, I'm not gonna present in the way that you're thinking. So that was just really interesting to me. Thank you. Um, and I'm so grateful for you sharing that. I appreciate um, it. You mentioned that you are, you had two different titles that you do, personal trainer for the brain, mm-hmm. um, and that you are a rehabilitation of identity. Is that, those the two things? Yeah,
0: identity rehab specialist. Identity rehab specialist. That's
1: mm-hmm. so, such a powerful. Statement of what you do, and I wondered if you'd unpack them a little bit more, and kind of how you how that plays out day to
0: day. Just a, a quick context for somebody who's yeah. listening and hasn't heard of me or about me is I'm, I'm generally my all of my content is known as the patient doctor, and the reason being is I was a patient who went to 21 specialists over nine years, spent over hundred thousand dollars to get a diagnosis, only to find out that no one knew what to do with that diagnosis. So all of that effort, all of that experience and expectation landed me in a place where I had a diagnosis but no effective change. So the only reason I became a doctor was I couldn't find a good one, right? (laughs) And in my experience of why I became a personal trainer for the brain was I moved into getting nine total board certifications and board eligibilities in what's known as functional neurology. So basically makes me somebody who can practically work through neuroplasticity, which is how do we change the brain in real time? and working through that in a way that I hadn't experienced. So everything in the traditional model didn't really work for somebody who was trying to get whole like I was. They're really good at triage, not great at wholeness and wellness. And then the alternative providers, really good at rehab and really good at kind of wellness, but not good at complex cases. So how do you do wholeness and wellness in a complex case that may never get to resolution, that I may never fully heal or fully recover, but I don't want to stay in this constant state of recovery and triage? So I was trying to find a middle ground between that. So the personal trainer for the brain came from this space of, I want to be a clinician who supports people who have gone through what I've gone through. That's my lived experience. The other side of it in terms of the identity rehab specialist is going, you know, I got introduced to really cool tools like DISC and Strength Finders, and you know, MTBI and the Enneagram, and learning all of this self awareness piece. But going, God, it feels like there's so much increased understanding and increased awareness, but not increased application. Like mm-hmm. I want to know what to do with that information. I want to finish a Brené Brown or a Simon Sinek book or a Malcolm Gladwell book, who I ran into at the coffee shop next door just last week. It was awesome. Cool, um, that's awesome. And go. I hear what you're saying, but what in the hell do I do with it? Yeah. So in this idea of being the patient doctor, I came back to this statement that goes across all of my work from a patient perspective, a provider perspective, a parent perspective, a partner perspective, and as a person, is I want to know how neuroscience can meet practical application and self-care at the same time. Like, Can we connect our brain to our body in practical ways to take care of ourselves? And also do it through really good contemporary neuroscience, but in a way that makes sense for somebody who goes, what exactly is neuroplasticity, right? So it's trying to make it all practical because, you know, I I left with more questions than I ever got answers to in literally every doctor's visit I ever had. And Mm -hmm. I don't want to do that to people. At the end of the day, my reason for being is to help people find more safety inside their lives. How do we find more safety and do this in sustainable ways?
2: Yeah, I am like so dumb on this subject. So I'll be really good at helping bring our audience along because I'm not afraid to ask the question and admit I know nothing about neuroplasticity. That's okay. So just curious, like, uh, what are like some of the kind of like foundational truths of sort of this work and sort of how can people begin to conceptually start to like get grasp of the work that you do and how it could impact
0: them. Yeah, it's, I, I appreciate the question. And to encourage you, Lindsay, just so you know, my undergrad is in digital animation and film and I used to do music full time. Uh, <laughs> so you're talking to somebody whose original degree is in art. So you too can also learn what the word neuroplasticity means because I essentially had the academic understanding of, you know, a rock at the beginning of my, my schooling. Mm. I think it's one of the foundational, probably the most foundational thing at my work is this idea of finding safety and going, okay, well, what does safety look like, right? Because 97% of what's happening to us as human beings on a daily basis is subconscious. Mm-hmm. Mm. So our body is trying to keep us alive. Our body is trying to support us. But what happens if we've never heard the phrase that one hundred percent of what your body is doing is supportive but not necessarily helpful? right? Like mm, I don't, that's good. I've had over two thousand migraines in the last twenty years. I've had nine in the last four weeks. For me to understand that my body is trying to help me when a migraine starts has taken a lot of work. <laughs> okay? yeah. Like it makes me both appreciative of what I've done and angry that I still have to do it because it's so hard, right? So in the idea that my body is trying to help me find safety, then if we look at the last 24 hours, never mind the last 24 months, one of the biggest things that's come up is just the idea of what helps me to feel safe, right? What is my relationship with safety and survival and things like self-gratification? So one of the core concepts that we do in all of my work is to help people understand that A lot of the times we think that we're trying to find something that's going to help us feel better or give us more margin. But the way the brain works is actually the most relevant thing that it needs is for you to minimize pain first. You can't even think clearly enough to understand what it is that you want if you're in enough pain that you can't even think clearly. And the exact same part of your brain that processes physical pain also processes mental and emotional pain. So another way of thinking through that is when fear goes up, cognition goes down. And if we've seen anything over mm-hmm. the last two years, people can't think clearly and don't understand what they feel. They yeah. can't even articulate it. They can't even connect to it. How many times have we been sitting across somebody at onsite or in our own places or in our own lives or our own homes and going, what are you thinking? I don't know. How are you feeling? No idea. Are you uncomfortable? Oh my God, yes. Right? Yeah. So When fear goes up and cognition goes down, if we can find a way to really effectively minimize fear, how can we create a space where we can even access our ability to think and feel in more effective ways. And then you can unpack that into a plethora of practical ways to do that. That's really helpful. Thank you. You're welcome.
1: I think you mentioned self-care and safety, and I'm just wondering, what is your unique lens on that? Because as I was researching you, I was like, oh, that's a really unique perspective. And I think we don't often put those two things together. We're saying, oh, I'm, you know, self-care is this indulgent idea When it connects to something that is as basic as safety, how do we make sense of that? And how do you walk
0: your clients through that, your patients? I appreciate asking. It's a great question. Uh, I think the first thing with finding safety is understanding that your brain can't tell the difference between perception and reality. Mm, Um, Yeah. One of the ways that I say it is your brain can't tell the difference between a bear and a deadline, um, I've said that in the south hmm. sometimes, and they think I'm saying deadline. I'm, I'm <laughs> saying yeah. deadline, like a, diff- a deliverable. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so, for instance, if you've flown recently, or you flew at any point in your life, or you've ever heard of anyone flying, when somebody runs late for a flight, which version of them shows up? Are they are they about hmm. to miss the flight, and they go? Mm going to check in and welcome this moment, right? Nobody yeah, does I know. that. <laughs> Unless they've done a lot of work at on site maybe, right? But you're in a situation where if you start to feel this perception of a loss in safety or a loss in what it is that you're pursuing and you start to feel uncomfortable, your brain responds the exact same way to running late for a flight as it does for somebody pulling a gun on you. Hmm. So one of the concepts that I communicate which you can apply especially to the last 2 years is is one of the most helpful ways to navigate the relationship or the conversation around safety is to ask yourself two questions. Is this situation that I'm going through, is my way of life in danger or is my actual life in danger? Because those are two mm. very different things. Because I can help people who are acting irrationally or irrationally doing something that is wholly inappropriate. I'm not saying that's happened over the last two years. I'm just saying people have done things that not everybody agrees with. And are they doing it because their life is literally in danger or because they think their way of life is in danger? Because this allows us to have a completely different conversation of why does my, I'm a cisgendered heterosexual white male. Why is it that when I get pulled over, I don't have the same degree of fear as some of my BIPOC friends, that when they get pulled over, do they believe their way of life is in danger and they're going to be late to the lunch that they scheduled? Or do they believe their actual life is in danger? Until I make that determination, both of us will actually respond in the same way as if it is life-threatening. But if I can say, I'm not in danger, I'm not unsafe, I feel uncomfortable. This is not unhealthy, it's unpractice. Then all of a sudden you're able to bring somebody back into the conversation who can actually make an executive decision. Because when fear goes up, cognition goes down. So if you're running late for a flight and you go, am I going to die if I don't make this flight? Technically, no. Does it feel like I'm dying? Does it feel like this is going to be the end of the world? Yes. Mm. Is it relevant? Yes. Is it real? No. So the finding safety piece is so heavily connected to, is your way of life in danger or is your actual life in danger? Make that determination before you step into whatever you're about to step into. Because the version of you that shows up based on that answer will completely change the outcome.
2: Yeah. I love the idea, too, of... Just being unpracticed that you mentioned. Cause that's like such an opportunity for practice and for (laughs) resilience and Mm -hmm. creating a new way of being in that moment that Absolutely. often just we're so closed off to it,
0: you know? Absolutely, and that's exactly where it ties into what Mackenzie was asking about the sustainable self-care. The reason I use the word sustainable in front of self-care is we've had this massive shift over the last four years, and I've seen it because I was putting out self-care courses and work five, six years ago, and every yeah. the first question everybody kept going was, what's the difference between self-care and self-help? We've had this huge mm. shift from self-help to self-care, but the challenge that's happening is so much of it is unsustainable because it doesn't give effective practices. We yeah. read the books of 21 days to a better you, 21 days to a perfect this, 21 day. The reality is with the way the brain works, it takes 21 days for your brain to realize that the conversation is even relevant. If you make mm-hmm. a change too fast, it'll actually hit the eject button. This is why when somebody gets an organ transplant, they're on medication to help them with that organ transplant for the rest of their life, because their body is trying to reject the thing that is keeping them alive, right? So if we introduce something so significant too fast, our body will actually reject it outright. So when it's sustainable self-care, it's like, okay, well, what am I practicing? And is this increasing my opportunities to feel safe, to feel seen, known, loved, belong? What am I doing And am I getting any permission or am I giving myself permission to know that it's going to feel unhealthy because it's unpracticed? It's going to feel unsafe because it's unfamiliar, right? But what if I do this concept of going, oh, this is just about practice. How many times have I done this? How many times have I been anxious when I realize I'm running late somewhere versus how many times have I practiced Pausing, taking a deep breath, putting my hand on my chest, and telling myself, I'm gonna be okay. I'm still gonna be uncomfortable, but mm-hmm. this is about practicing something different. Like one of the phrases that I, w- I would land that kind of idea with is, and you guys finish a sentence for me practice makes
1: perfect.
0: Yeah, you guys know anybody that does anything perfectly, even once?
1: No. No. But we have sense. someone at work that says it's a practice, not a perfect. And yeah. I always,
0: and the way that, that I say it is, practice makes permanent. And what it is, is you've got to ask, what exactly am I practicing? Because the road outside of this building that I'm in is permanent. I just need a big enough tool to disrupt it, to change it if I want to, but I can rebuild a permanent highway if I want to. Practice means permanent. It means what's currently so practiced that it's a permanent part of your life then what am I practicing and what can I change? And if it's a big, deep-rooted, constant part of my life, I'm probably going to need quite a bit of repetition, right? So Mm -hmm. in those spaces, it's going, oh, I'm just asking, what am I practicing? What am I practicing? What are my patterns? What are my protocols? Am I even aware? Is it practice to even ask myself what I'm practicing, right? Yeah. That's okay. That's part of what we're trying to do to just – understand a more likely way to do it because if I don't feel like there's any way to move forward it's actually a really healthy thing for my brain to resist moving forward if it doesn't feel like there's a viable strategy to do so in a safe and approachable way
2: That's cool we're working on a new digital product that is called practice makes presence and yeah. but it's around uh, sort of helping people create really practice based tools for sort of grounding and being centered mm. in the moment when life presents
0: 100%. things that you're
2: unpracticed in although we yeah. wouldn't have used that language until we talk now I love so it can it. I, I add cool. one
0: fun fact one fun yeah. fact for you for that course okay when you become aware of something like something being present and
1: mm-hmm. you're
0: presencing it or you're offering your presence to it your brain has already prepared all of the resources and all of the employees and all of the strategies to implement what it is that you became aware of 15 to 17 complete cycles before you even became aware of it. And what I mean by that Say is more ima- about that. Yeah, so imagine that you become aware of anger. You are like I'm being practicing what's present, right? Or I want to name that I feel uncomfortable or I want to name that I'm practicing joy, Right. Your body is so efficient, right, that imagine, uh, to give you a different analogy, okay, imagine that the presence is the lead singer of a band. It's like that's what grabs a microphone and you name it, right? Every single time that that lead singer steps up to that microphone to presence what's coming up for them, the entire support crew that stocks, resources, unpacks, prepares, stages, and equips everything that that band needs has gone through a checklist 15 to 17 times to make sure that when they step up to the mic that they can say it, right? That's how efficient the body is. And the reason I mention that is one of the biggest things that happens in therapy and the biggest things that happens because I've worked through a lot of therapy myself. I do a lot of AEDP, IFS, a lot of different work with my patients because there's so much trauma. I run a trauma-trained, trauma-informed practice because we work with complex cases that have a lot of trauma. And one of the biggest things that happens for every human being, whether you're at OnSite or you're at my clinic or you're just trying to get through the line at Chick-fil-A and they're not as efficient as they normally are or wherever you happen to buy your chicken sandwich, what ends up happening is so often we go, God, I feel like I should be better at this by now. God, I feel like this shouldn't be happening this way. And the reality is, is we're overriding and rewiring the blueprint for a system that has been doing this so well for so long that it takes time to be able to rewire this in a way that when I'm present to it, something may come up for me that I didn't even anticipate, which you guys have seen a ton in on-site. Somebody says, what's coming up for me? And then their whole brain and body hijacks their answer and gives them something <laughs> completely different that they weren't expecting. It's because in that space, our body is working so hard to give us the answer before we even realize what the answer is. And sometimes that answer isn't what we want, but it's what's been practiced, Right. So Mm. to to distill that in a practical statement, the phrase that I would use in that, especially for permission, to understand that you're in process and that you're in practice and that you can trust the process, right?
2: Right. Um, Mm.
0: Is that therapy is not about hurting less; it's about recovering faster. Mm. Therapy is about is not about hurting less; it's about recovering faster. Because if I have a migraine start and I have an aura start, I know without a shadow of a doubt I am going to be in a significant amount of pain within about 45 minutes physically. My recovery time mentally and emotionally is significantly faster than it's been in the past because you're talking to somebody who's attempted suicide twice. I'm very Mm -hmm. familiar with these spaces of when you don't feel like the recovery is sufficient. And if somebody had told me, oh, when you have a migraine, you're going to hurt a lot, but you can still recover mentally and emotionally, even though your body's going to take time to heal. And just because you had the migraine doesn't mean that you, you haven't been successful or the work that you're doing isn't worth it, right? So sometimes we still hurt, but sometimes we can also recover faster.
1: Hey, friends. We don't have to look very far to find reasons to get stressed out, overwhelmed, or anxious. I mean, I kind of feel like I've been operating in anxiety at a heightened state for the last few years. And if I'm honest, a lot feels unstable right now. While I know that challenging circumstances have been happening since the beginning of human existence, it's no secret that the past few years have had a unique impact on our individual and collective anxiety. And while we can't always find external stability, we can cultivate tools that help us create internal stability. That's why I'm so excited about Onsite's brand new course, Practice Makes Presence. We designed this course to help you understand why you feel anxious, what to do in response to it, and how you can use grounding tools to manage your anxiety more effectively. In this course, we take a deep dive into five grounding practices that you can implement that will help you cultivate peace and presence in your life. I think we all need this course, and I'm so excited that we get to now offer it to the world Join us for practice makes presence and get the peace you deserve. As an added bonus, when you use the code grounding through July 31st, you'll get 35% off this brand new offering. So head to onsiteworkshops.com/presence to learn more. I think that's something you mentioned briefly on it of like earlier. Having clients who may never reach that full healing. And so as you've been talking through the idea of practice, it just has felt really permission giving. And I'm wondering, even in your own story, like how do you hold those two tensions of I'm going to be hopeful while also knowing the reality of what this is? And it may never I may never not have a migraine. But also I am recovering and I am doing the work. And I just wonder what that tension looks like and how you, the practices have helped with that and how the work that you've done personally has helped with that. It it makes me think of a concept we talk about being content while contending. Like I'll be content in this space while contending for the more or contending for what could be. So would you speak a little bit to
0: that? Yeah, I appreciate you asking. It's a really complex and really difficult process. Yeah. I think one of the biggest things that I've, given myself permission to do is to recognize that this is still so difficult, right? And I would love for it to be easier. And there are spaces between that have rest, they have their moments. But for me personally, I mean, I've had five head injuries. I was run over by a car when I was eight. I have structural damage around all four sides of my brainstem. I have something that you can't wave a wand and get rid of, you know? I grew up in a charismatic Pentecostal world and was anointed in enough oil to bathe a cow. It never oh. got rid of my migraines, so never fixed. Um And so I think in that, the first thing that came to mind when you asked that, Mackenzie, is honoring the fact that it's still hard, but I recover faster than I used to. Because a lot of it, there's so much unmet expectation and so much resentment that I want to be beyond this. And for me personally and a lot of the people that I work with, we, want, we don't get beyond it. So I'll give you, I'll give you a, a simple framework for what that looks like because ultimately I'm trying to feel safe. Because the degree to which I feel safe is the degree to which I can continue or not, right? And we're talking like on an existential yeah. plane, never mind a little yeah. like I'm gonna get out of bed plane. And safety is is dependent on three factors. It's permission, consent, and participation. Mm. And what I mean by that is permission is what am I thinking about in this space? Do I have permission to think? the frustration? Do I have permission to think about the anger? Do I have permission to connect to the fact that I wish things were different? What am I thinking? And do I have permission to go, you know what, I'm giving myself permission to engage for 15 minutes today when what I really want to do is engage for two hours. What is my relationship with permission? Do I have permission to do things that help me to avoid my trauma? And do I have permission to pursue the things that feel like I treasure or the things that I want in my life? Yeah, I need permission to do both of those things. The consent piece is going, what am I consenting to? Like, how much of this? Like, I gave Mm -hmm. myself permission to engage, but then I didn't realize that I thought I had an eight-hour window, but maybe my body updated me that I got a two-hour window. So maybe in real time, my consent is changing that I said, yes, I want to do that. But then I didn't realize that I consented to probably more that I could do, or I realized I could probably consent to more. Like This feels really actually approachable. And then I'm connecting with that emotional side of it of going, what does this mean to me, and what am I consenting to? So permission is very much tied to what we're thinking. Consent is very much tied to what we're feeling. But permission allows me to say yes, but then consent allows me to say how much. right? And then the participation is like, okay, but when do we start? Like, exactly to what degree am I participating? Am I participating as a passenger, as a driver? Help me to understand what's the practicality of this. What are we actually doing? How am I actually participating? Because if I don't not only say yes, and then say, okay, but how much? And then go, okay, but when do we start? Because I could say, yeah, absolutely, I feel like doing that. And yeah, I think I could do that for a few days. And then somebody goes, well, you got five minutes to be here. I'm like, I'm not ready. I can't participate yet. So I yeah. think permission, consent, and participation is a huge piece. And I'll give you an, a quick example, if I can, that yeah. one of the connections when people are like, help me understand how the brain stuff connects with how I feel, right? Yeah. Um, there's not a single person that I've worked with that is working through anxiety that doesn't have a skewed relationship with touch, physical touch, okay? Mm-hmm. The part of your brain that develops anxiety is a part of your body that deals with anticipation, like something's about to touch me. And very, 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 very commonly, people who are hypersensitive to touch, or ticklish, also deal with anxiety, because they're built on the same framework. Mm. Touchiness and sensitivity in the skin can make for touchiness and sensitivity in our brain, right? So when is, I'm working is with that people,
2: like a cause and effect thing? Uh, yeah, like, well, like was different. I tickled too much as a kid, and that's why I'm anxious?
0: <laughs> or well, it's more of a relationship with safe touch. Okay. Right? Because interestingly enough, regardless of where you are as a human being, you can't tickle yourself, right? And if you can't tickle yourself, there's a lot of stopgap measures that are failing. (laughs) But most people can't tickle themselves, so it can't be an issue with the actual experience or the actual input. It has to be an issue with how you experience that input. So if you touch the bottom of your foot and you're not jumpy, and I touch the bottom of your foot and you're jumpy, it can't be strictly tied to the actual mechanics of touch, right? It's what are you experiencing, the reason you can't tickle yourself, it's a, it's a closed feedback loop. You know what's coming. You don't have to anticipate, right? Okay. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm laughing
1: like, because I'm like feeling like my mail is being read. So yeah, continue. I'm sorry.
0: But this is how you fix it, right? You ready? Okay. Because you can't tickle yourself. And you're like, God, I feel like I deal with anxiety all the time. And I've been doing five years of work on my anxiety. And for the love of God, my anxiety is not dropping. Yeah, because your anxiety might not be happening in your brain. It might be the consequence of the anxiety you're having in your body. Right, because you're sensitive to touch. So, what does it look like to walk barefoot? What does it look like to take a shower and fluctuate the temperatures so that you can feel the difference between cold and hot? And you give your body the chance to have dynamic conversations that don't require you to unpack everything in front of a group of people during experiential dynamic psychotherapy. Just saying, maybe that happens. But for instance, when you use permission, consent, and participation for you, Mackenzie, seeing you said, you "I'm reading your mail," like if it as an example. If somebody touches the bottom of your foot or engages you when you're not ready for it, it's going to create a startle response. But if somebody says, hey, do I have permission to approach? Yes. Can we do this for three to four seconds? Or how long do you want to consent to me engaging you or approaching you? Let's do a five-minute meeting. Five minutes feels approachable, right? Five seconds on the touch on the foot. Can I begin? Yes. So you gave permission to what's happening, you gave consent to how long it's happening, and then you gave approval to begin or participate. You do that in a meeting or you do that when somebody touches the bottom of your foot, 95% of the startle that's built in to keep you safe will disappear because you are in a position of control and authority, right? So permission, consent, and participation. Yes, I'm willing to do that. Yes, I'm willing to do it for this long. Yes, we can begin. You do those three things before, your felt sense of safety will go through the roof. But you have to say yes to all three first. That's really cool.
1: I feel like it's like blowing my mind a little bit and I'm not 100% like, okay. So <laughs> I'm just in real time processing it. And I think the feeling that was coming up for me is like when you were saying like people don't like to be tickled. And I was like, I feel trapped. Yeah, And I think that is a sensation that when i It is something I experience in the way that I live life. I don't want to feel trapped. And I have to literally tell myself, like, you are safe. You're not trapped physically, emotionally, or conceptually in life, you know. Yeah. Yeah. But Um, for example,
0: where we were talking about you can't tell the difference between perception and reality, us just dialoguing about it Mm -hmm. shifts the way that your body's safe felt sense of safety is happening in real time, right? So can we practice it real quick so we talk about (laughs) practice? Is that okay? Okay, sure. And here's the thing. I'm not even in the same state as you right now. Well, you're not. When no. how, like when we do that, sure is kind of still a, it's a, it's a midway word of I'm not sure yet. Like I'm, I'm not saying no, but I'm not saying yes. Cause it's even. Yes. In permission the is well, yes. That's okay, but even the ask, it's like, I don't know yet. Right.
2: What, so, what at the people that are listening that cannot see McKinsey is <laughs> that she has had such a physical reaction the whole time. <laughs> Dr. Rome has been talking about this, like shaking, yeah. trying to hold yeah. in. Sort of awkward giggles.
0: Yeah. Yes. Well, and okay. this is a thing because your body's responding in the same way as somebody who has claustrophobia, mm. right? You get stuck on yeah. an elevator, or somebody who fears public speaking. And I've just asked you to consider what it looks like to to go on stage, and you're like, I can't mm. even consider it. It's that yeah. intimidating, right? So, it's funny. I'll, I'll show you a, just a quick little practice because again, we got to make it practical, right? Right. It's sustainable. Will you take a? Would you mind taking a deep breath for me?
1: Ah, <sighs> Yes.
0: And would you do it in through your nose and out through your mouth? And then on the next one, try to do it without recruiting your shoulders. See if you can do it just from your nose and your mouth, but don't use the rest of your body. So you're giving yourself a chance to check in in different ways. And I'm inviting you. It's an invitation, not a test, right? Okay? Mm -hmm. An invitation, not a challenge, right? So if... If we And I'll show you with your own hands. Anybody who's listening, you can actually do this, okay? Um, Actually, I'll do that in just a second. I'm going to segue because I'm thinking of something else. Okay, so would you consider having a conversation around touch? Sure, yes. And you see how you self-edited. That's up to you, right? I wouldn't change for sure, but you realize yes feels different, okay? So can I ask you a couple of questions? Yes. Okay. Would you consider... If you were in a position of control, practicing this with someone that you feel safe with? Yes. Okay. So who is that person, if you don't mind naming them? My husband. Okay. So if your husband was saying, hey, I'm going to touch the bottom of your foot, and you know that you have a history of being ticklish. If yes. If I play, what's his name? Paul. Paul. Okay. So if I'm Paul, if I said, is it okay if I do that, do you want me to touch the bottom of your foot? Do I have permission? Yes. Okay. Will you take a deep breath for me? How long would you like for me to touch your foot?
1: 10 seconds.
0: Does that feel approachable? Yeah. You have permission to change it. Is 10 seconds okay? Yes. Okay. And then I'm standing there as Paul saying, you've said Mm -hmm. yes, you've said for how long, and then I say, when would you like for me to begin?
1: You can do it now.
0: Right. And if you notice your tone, your pitch, your body language all (laughs) dropped, your facial tone changes, you're not smiling as big. And as soon as you get uncomfortable, you're like the person in church during worship who's doing all that kinetic stuff, right? Like you just start swaying left to right because your body's discharging all that extra energy. Yeah. But as you were saying, yes, actually, I am okay to do this yes, actually, I'm okay to do it for 10 seconds, and thank you for double-checking that that still feels right for me. And you can start now. Then the key in that situation is not only do we count to 10 together, but I have to honor my agreement because you're getting into a profoundly vulnerable position that if mm-hmm. I don't keep my word and, con- and commit to what it is that you've consented to, then that's when the trauma sets in. But you got to mm-hmm. realize that vulnerability means to be woundable. Right? So you can't yeah. have a vulnerable conversation without the potential for being hurt. But if you have a restorative experience where somebody does something that your body doesn't feel is safe and you have a safe encounter with it, that's where you start to reprogram your programming and then all of a sudden touch becomes safer. But you have to start mm-hmm. with, I'm willing to be touched or have a conversation or raise my voice or talk to that person, whatever the permission piece is. I'm yeah. consenting to doing it for this long. This is what I'm checking in with feels appropriate at the moment. And then I'm double checking that that wasn't reactive, that it's actually true.
1: Mm-hmm. And then I'm
0: saying, okay, well, when's an appropriate time for us to begin? And let's make sure that we walk through that in a way that's honoring to each other. And then we repeat and we repeat and we repeat until it becomes normal or it becomes permanent, safe, safer, safer. And then eventually it becomes safe and then eventually it becomes permanent. Okay, it's
1: important. Really cool. Yeah. Thank you for walking us through that. Like, even
0: for what you did, how much work does it feel like, right? (laughs) This is why it's practice. It's exercise. There's no work that we're going to do in this situation that's not going to break a sweat. Not if it's real work. Mm. Okay.
2: So I have a kind of random question, like pulling on a thread of something you said earlier when you were talking about sort of how amazing our bodies are, that they're sort of rehearsing for the moment, Mm -hmm. you know, that we don't even know we need yet have reframed that a bit. I don't just cause I didn't I remember
0: I to rehearsal moving forward. Cause you consolidated everything that I was talking about and all I'm saying.
2: <laughs> okay. Well, I, I just didn't remember your exact wording, which was more eloquent eloquent.
0: That's great. I don't either. So it's okay.
2: And then, you know, that work that you do around the identity rehabilitation was just curious, you know, so many people struggle with imposter syndrome and, I was just wondering about, like, how those things even tie together, sort of, like, the idea that, like, we are more prepared for the moment than we feel or than we realize. And that is so much, I feel it's a lot of my identity work even is just having more confidence in my presence and how I show up.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. The first thing that came to mind, fully appreciate and understand the imposter syndrome, especially as an identical twin. I graduated high school 85 pounds heavier than my twin brother. So anybody who's ever, ever had body image issues or body dysmorphia, disordered eating or anything like that, you're like, I wonder what I'd look like if I was 85 pounds lighter. I would look in the passenger seat and go, oh, look ideal version, right? So it's, this is a great, I've so, so many experiences. But you know, the interesting thing is, is I think one of the things that we sometimes, it's right in front of us, but we miss it, is I think for a lot of us, the reason that we have imposter syndrome is that we're actively trying to become someone else on purpose, but our system is competing with old narratives about who we are. So when we show up in a way that's new, even if we show up in a way that's healthy, our body's going, but that doesn't look like who we used to be. So we're becoming a different version of ourselves, and it feels like an imposter because it's anchored in who we used to be, and who we are and who we're becoming is intentionally different for a reason, but we're competing with our own version of ourselves in real time, right? So... It's not that I think, I think the misunderstanding with imposter syndrome is that we're trying to become a different version of someone else, or what we're doing is not qualified in relationship to other people, or what other people Mm. will think, or whether or not we are qualified or disqualified to do fill in the blank. It's actually that our system, based off of our patterns and our history, is saying who you are right now does not compute to who we used to be. And I'm trying to understand who you're asking to show up. And if we feel unsafe, the version that's going to show up first is the oldest version that has the highest probability of survival. Another Mm -hmm. way of saying that is when we're triggered, all of us become the seven-year-old version of ourselves, right? What's the common phrase that you guys use? If it's hysterical, it's probably Historical. historical, right? Because historical means that you're telling a story. And if you Mm -hmm. change the lead character, then somebody's an imposter, okay? And you're becoming a different version of yourself. So it feels really, really weird to Mm -hmm. do that. Um, But I think one of the things that can be really helpful is to say the sentence, this makes sense if I'm seven, this makes sense if I'm 10. This is where the, you can make the internal family systems model really practical because you can go, oh, this lives in the part of my brain that was the, it had arrested development at 7 or 10 or 12, and I experienced this trigger. That makes sense based on me being 7. That makes sense to what happened when I was 14. This trigger makes sense based on the younger version of me because as soon as you say to yourself, that makes sense if I am younger, what do you immediately know? That I'm older. That you're older. You immediately check in with a relevant version of who you are in real time because your brain is going to go to a historical context and very quickly go, based on the number of experiences we've had, what is our highest probability of survival? Show up that way immediately. And it will move you into that space without your permission, without your consent, and without your participation because it's Mm. trying to keep you alive, right? So if you step into the driver's seat and you go pause, that tone of voice is terrifying for these seven-year-old and me. I'm 39. Yeah. Is it relevant? Yes. Is it real in real time? No. Am I okay? Mm. No. Am I uncomfortable? Yeah. Am I in danger? Not anymore. Who mm. am I in the moment? And then you're reframing who is the character that's leading the conversation in the story because imposter syndrome is specifically tied to the wrong person fitting the wrong role. And the current version of you fitting an old role is wrong. The current version of you fitting your current role is appropriate.
2: Yeah, that's so helpful. I don't know that I would have ever gotten there making that connection on my own. But when it shows up for me, I can like almost picture myself as the little kid, you know, Mm -hmm. like hovering under the desk, not wanting to do the thing or have the hard conversation. And so to be able to like name it with language is really helpful. Yeah,
0: and giving yourself the permission to go, that makes sense, that right? Makes sense, yeah. Can can I give you one more three three piece that's practical for that? Yeah.
1: Okay. Yes, all the practicals. I appreciate it.
0: Um, there's a framework that we use with patients, especially when we're navigating a trigger in real time, because when I'm doing you know, personal training for the brain, people get uncomfortable. Things come up, okay? Yeah. Um, in ADP they call it a positive corrective experience, right? And you guys see this at Onset all the time. You're not doing the work that avoids the trauma. You're doing the work that resolves the trauma, right? Very yeah. different. So stuff's yep. going to go sideways. So mm-hmm. when something happens, when you get triggered, let's say that whatever your trigger is, If you ask three questions, you can very quickly reorient to what you not only understand, but what you do with it. Okay. And the three questions are understandable, appropriate, and sustainable. Right. So, for instance, Lindsay, is it understandable based on your history that if you get triggered, you're the little girl under the desk? Yeah. Yeah. Totally makes sense. Right. Also, the key is you have to answer yes to all three for it to be healthy. the healthiest version of it you have to be able to say yes to all three so is it understandable that when you get triggered you turn into that little girl under the desk sure is it appropriate in the middle of that trigger for your brain to say hey i need to keep you alive this is the best way for us to do that and all of that comes up reactively for you in real time yes yeah triggers are really really helpful the body's trying to support you it's also a reaction okay Hmm. The question is whether or not you want to sustain that or to what degree you want to sustain that, and is it sustainable? So for you, if you get triggered, and it makes sense based on your history, it makes sense based on what's happening right now, do you want to continue doing that moving forward?
2: Uh, hiding under the desk? Correct. That one is harder
0: to now, say That's yes interesting, to. right? That's, yeah. that's harder to say yes to. But you feel how there's an automatic, it depends. Because yeah. sometimes it might be situationally appropriate. So do I have permission to hide under the desk? Yes. If the situation calls for it, you actually do. But if you don't want to and your body's trying to do it for you, then what you're saying is I want to sustain my ability to make that choice for myself. Yes, Hmm. That's what you're trying to do. I don't want to lose agency. Right. I don't want to lose control. So how do you introduce agency when your body's already reacting? The segue is inappropriate, right? So understandable is history. Appropriate is present tense. In the moment, you're going to get reactive. Your body's going to trigger you, right? Historical and hysterical. The key in that moment is as soon as you recognize that you've been triggered and you become aware of it, then you move from reaction to response. And you mm. simply say, what do I choose to do right now? What is an appropriate choice for me in this moment? Mm-hmm. And then you choose to sustain that moving forward. So if you can't automatically say yes to sustainable, something needs to change in the moment, right? So is it understandable? Is it appropriate? Is it sustainable? Based on my past or my triggers, do my triggers make sense? Yeah. Based on how I just got triggered, is my reaction appropriate? Yeah. Do I want to choose a different response if I'm in the driver's seat and I have my decision? Yes. So what I'm saying is I want to choose what I sustain moving forward. But all I know is i got to come back to this understandable, appropriate, sustainable. If I can say yes to all three, that's when you really rewire triggers to the point that your body will start taking care of them before you even realize that you've been triggered. And that's a whole different ballgame.
1: Yeah, that's huge. Yeah. So it's changing the third one so that that the response is actually what is sustainable. Exactly. So when I'm activated, I'm not hiding underneath the desk, desk. I'm taking deep breaths or I'm going for a walk or whatever.
0: Absolutely, because then what you end up practicing is that you have choice, you have agency, Mm -hmm. you have decision, you have control and you're deciding from an executive position as a leader in your own system, as the boss of your own body, mm-hmm. as the healthy parent you never got, you're saying, what do I want to reproduce? Practice makes yeah. permanent. What am I practicing? If I don't practice something different, my body will default to old patterns. Yeah. So if I change what I sustain and I change what I practice in a either a strong enough way or a consistent enough way or long enough, if I change Mm -hmm. my relationship with what I'm practicing, my body will get the memo like a group of employees getting new direction from leadership, that this is the way we do things moving forward, and then you will rewire the entire way that you approach a trigger because you've done it enough times for the employees to go, oh, so that's what you're asking for now because we were doing it based on what you asked for last time, but you haven't Mm -hmm. asked for something new in 30 years. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah. So we have to give our system new instructions and that takes intent.
1: Wow, that's so good. Dr. Jerome, I feel like there are so many questions I want to ask before I ask our final question, Lindsay, is there anything else that you Well, I just wanted yeah, and this might be your final question.
2: I'm not sure, but I just want to make sure we talked about how like people can engage with you moving forward because I know that like you've brought up so many helpful practical tools. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. And so I think people are just going to want more.
0: I appreciate Definitely. Um, I'll answer that quick. The easiest way is drjerome.com. And for me, it's practice that I can say that a lot quicker because I used to defer and try to get around the question because it's weird for me to do self-promotion. And I'm actually happy with how quickly I answered that. So I'm just going to name that and celebrate that. The other thing is, I always encourage everybody, especially if this is the first time that you've heard it, that it's like, oh my God, that was a fire hose. Once you've done this a couple of times, it's really not. It's just new. So it's not mm. that it's unapproachable. It's that it's unpracticed Practiced. or unfamiliar, right? So what I recommend is nothing on the planet is designed to be integrated in our system on a first pass. All this mm. conversation was, was exposure. You're just getting new information, but you got to digest it and then you got to integrate it and then it becomes a part of your lifestyle. So my recommendation is if any of this was like, oh, that's good, I should probably write that down, or this is great, or I don't want to hear this guy again, awesome. Listen to what your body is saying, but then if it's something that feels approachable or supportive, it's going to take reps. It's going to take consistency. So one of the things that I would say for different people in different buckets, I've got e-courses on my website if people want more information about my brain-based approach to things like the Enneagram, or for people who like listening, I recommend using listen notes. It's a great website that's an aggregator for podcasts. If you go to mm. listen notes and you put in my name, I think there's like 150 podcasts over the last four years. Just pick a topic. You're like, that feels cool. And then listen to it at least twice because on the first pass, you're just getting exposed to it. So drdrome.com, listen notes, and then see what lands for you.
1: Thank you. I love that. Thank you for promoting because I feel like people are going to want to know you.
0: I appreciate it. Um, so that. I'm excited.
1: I know that we both left interactions with you of wanting to know more, so I'm, I'm confident in that. My last question, we often ask people, like, what is a practice that keeps them centered? And I think we've talked about, a lot about different practices and the importance of practices. So what is a practice in your own life that has become essential for you?
0: It's a, I appreciate the question. It's also interesting, having done this at Onsite myself, which I strongly endorse and recommend, I just noticed what came up for me as soon as you asked, especially with the emotion that came with it, because yeah. it's, it's a mixed bag. And I think I'll just name what what happened is one of the things that I'm navigating is how do you deal with the fear that hope brings, right? Mm-hmm. Like hope is not safe for everybody. Yeah, hope is mm-hmm. super intimidating. And how do you grieve good things? Like there's there's a big part of this. Like I went th- the first three months of this year with only three migraines. It's the only it's only mm. happened twice in the last twenty years one migraine Mm -hmm. per month, I averaged 10. And in the last five weeks, I've had 10. Mm. So I'm actively in this space right now. And the first thing that came to mind for me, especially in that context of hope being scary and grieving good things, is my practice is really heavily tied to not isolating in plain sight. Mm -hmm. And what I mean by that is, even now in the conversation that we're having, very few people are aware of how much my physical system is going through, right? How much my body is processing physical pain that impacts my mental and emotional kind of real estate and my experience. And I'm really, really well-practiced at compartmentalizing pain and hiding in front of the people that I'm with. And one of the practices is to just be a bit more transparent about where things are difficult and not feel so disqualified as somebody who does this for a living, to help Mm. people feel better, to help people be better versions of themselves, but to still be wrestling so significantly with things that I just can't control, I can only impact. So my practice is just to be a bit bit more transparent where people can see it and not Mm. so quickly assume that that will come with it's interesting to bring it back to what you said earlier, Lindsay, that it isn't a disqualification of the identity that I have developed that is healthier, and it doesn't indict me or eliminate my efforts in terms of what you both expected of this conversation. So that identity and that expectation problem, because I have to reframe my history around who you think I am and who you need me to be. So. Simple practice, not so simple practice, Uh, being a bit more transparent about where I am at the moment and not hiding in plain sight. Thank you for
2: your vulnerability. And it truly feels like a privilege to just be able to hold space and time with you and to see you. And for me, as a skeptical person, your authenticity and the way that you show up completely validates the work that you do and who you are as a person. So
0: Thank you. I appreciate mm-hmm. that. And I believe you. Yeah. Well, I've
1: got no Anna BS. I believe you.
0: Which <laughs> She's got no BS. <laughs> I need a workout. The reason I say that for anybody who's listening is one of the biggest things that I've had to do is go, thank you, I believe you, because my system automatically wants to resist that yeah. I mm-hmm. don't believe it about myself. But I can't negate what you believe about me. Mm-hmm. I also can't dictate what you believe about me. But if what you're saying feels safe, I can at least acknowledge that you believe it, and maybe that will give me permission to believe it as well. Yeah. Hmm. So thank Thank you. you. I believe you.
1: I wanted to affirm you as someone who is very great at reframing and great at pretending like things don't bother me and hiding in plain sight. I was really appreciative and it gives me permission to show up as my whole authentic self. And I know that that is a gift that you give in your practice and to the people that you get to serve because you're showing up and saying, hey, this is still hard. Like you said earlier, like this, it matters and it's still hard. And so thank you for letting us be in this space with you and being transparent. I'm really, really grateful.
0: Thank you so much. I appreciate the opportunity to be with both of you. What a gift. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening today and for committing valuable time to share space with these powerful stories. Make sure you hit subscribe to get all of our inspiring conversations with these incredible people delivered directly to you. And if you found this conversation particularly impactful, consider supporting the show by leaving a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen.
2: When our emotional health is suffering, many of us begin to feel alone and overwhelmed. If you're in that place right now, we deeply encourage you to ask for help. If Onsite can support you in connecting the dots with one of our programs or other offerings, Our admissions team would love to connect with you. Simply call 1-800-341-7432 or visit onsiteworkshops.com.